I mean, probably no more relevant is the concept of value and value-based health than the last four months. I mean, you know, for orthopedics particularly, um, if you look at all of the canceled procedures, orthopedics has been at the brunt of those procedures worldwide. 29 million cases, something like that, been canceled in Canada alone for us. It's been about 400,000 cases. The majority of those cases that have been canceled have been orthopedic elective procedures. And I suspect for you, Rudolph, and others, um, you know, we've seen lots of uh, your specific specialty areas, sports medicine related and or uh, hip and knee arth arthritis related cases being um, delayed. If not, I'll put on a backlog list. And why? There's a direct competition. The competition is tell us and prove to us that your ability to care for those patients and those patients need care more than another patient. Uh, tell us more that your orthopedic patient is more deserving of access to healthcare than a neurosurgical patient or a patient that might have um, a tumor or a patient that might have, you know, a cardiovascular problem, any of those. So we've, we've inherently had a issue of competition It's just gotten stronger and harder. So as a matter of just general statement, when I look back at evidence-based practice and I think of the term value-based healthcare, I see a ton of parallels. I know, mm -hmm. I think, you know, we were always interested in patient important outcomes. Well, it was clinically important. And then Gordon Guyatt, you know, maybe 10 years ago said, no, 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 no. It's patient important. The patients decide what outcomes matter. It should yep. be really involved, right? So we've had that happening. I'm curious, you know, uh, you, I'll, I'll, I'll throw three things out and let's see what others think. And certainly you, you jump in, Victor, and, and Rudolph right at the top here, but you've said a lot. So I think you've given us lots to think about. One is, um, what are the parallels between EBM and value-based healthcare? Is that is it truly a different entity or have we advanced it? Is it rebranding? What's that? When we talk about outcomes, EBM typically talks about outcomes for an individual. I'm learning from this discussion um, that value isn't always about the outcome, but it might be the value chain as you've described. It, it's going to be the host of activities in the beginning of that disease all the way through to the end that can provide value for that individual. And maybe we have to rethink outcomes, not as a singular event, yes or no, in a particular disease process, but a, a chain of ups and downs that ultimately overall create greater value. I'm just raising that and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I wanna get that clarified. And platform, the biggest thing for us doing traditional trials is how do you get them bigger and faster? I mean, yeah, we started out 10 years ago and we did some things I think were important. But that's not the future. Like the future isn't more 1,000 patient surgical trials that take seven years. I think you are envisioning a future that is probably what we have to do. And so educate me and others who are doing this, what would almost be antiquated now, is what is the future about how we're going to grow this? So I've thrown a lot of stuff out. Um, yeah. But let's start. Let's unpack stuff. And I know there's some people here with a lot of experience and interest in this area. No question, friends, is too simple or too complex, I think we work yeah. through it. If we don't know it, we don't know. And if it's too simple, we still share it because we want to make sure that everyone gets on the same, same basic. But let's start off with this. EBM, value-based healthcare, where do they align and where are they not aligned? Well, I concur, Mo, that uh, EBM and value-based healthcare, they're, they're not so much uh, uh, out of reach. I think uh, value-based healthcare uh, has a lot to do with EBM. Just, it, it just adds the, the economic aspect uh, so the economic aspect of EBM was not so much focused on uh, in the past, at least. And nowadays it's getting more attention. 
Um, and uh, maybe uh, uh, failure-based healthcare is about uh, bigger uh, patient groups and uh, just with uh, these rapid improvement cycles. Look at all the patients, not just patients from a trial, but we try to implement uh, the, the, the evidence from trials. I think you still need to do trials to uh, implement them um, to get things done. Yeah, my dog is barking. Sorry. That's okay. No, no worries. No worries. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> happens. Can happens. I interject something, Mo yeah. and Rudolph? Yeah. Yeah. Jump. Hey, hey, Brett. My, my say, that was great, Rudolph. Uh, really, both talks were awesome. And my sense is that evidence-based medicine comes to me as a practitioner and a surgeon thinking about how I'm going to apply. You know, that's my model of practice. But yeah. to me, value-based healthcare is the policymakers. You know, yeah. and they pay lip service to, you know, evidence-based medicine. But I think we ingrain evidence-based medicine, but the policymakers kind of use some evidence as tool. That's where I see a big distinction. And my uh, I, 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 I can follow you. So, um, and that there, there lays the hazard of just... Um, the and that hazard exactly has me... Like, I sit and I think of our trauma trials calcaneal fracture, surgery versus no surgery, you know, no difference. Shoulders, no difference. How many try, you know, the new ankle one, no difference. But for me as a practitioner, I can take that evidence and apply it to my individual patient. And I think there will be times when I need to operate on a calcaneus. Yeah. But if you have someone who's making policy, they'll say, hey, Petrosaur, there's no evidence to suggest that your surgery is going to do anything so we're not paying you for any of that so if you might as well forget it yeah. that's my worry that's, in it i i i i can i hear you and and this is uh this is worrisome so and this is why i think we as as physicians as doctors should uh, be involved in these value-based healthcare projects to uh, to tackle exactly this problem and this is why we should not be paid for outcome or uh, paid for or we should paid for practice improvement and it's, it's, it's hard to explain this to insurance companies or policymakers, uh, but we have to, it starts with the patient, but also with the individual patient. So, and we as clinicians, we are skilled. We've got the skills to make this decision together with the patient based on our experience and based on the literature. So this is evidence-based medicine. Nothing has changed about evidence-based medicine. And we're um, taking part in this value-based healthcare project to, uh, to be on the uh, on the driving wheel and not not uh, in the back seat, just let things happen. We are uh, on the steering wheel. We are trying to be in control. Otherwise, policymakers will definitely uh, do what you're just describing. Yeah, and, and I completely agree. And just to add, Rudolf, um, um, I think that if you um, would add, and this is just to get the discussion going, you would add a system like a bundled payment uh, for a specific treatment. Um, well, you might get more free in the, what you want to, to do. And for a specific patient, maybe you feel that he or she needs or gets a better result with surgery or, uh, well, the opposite, of course. And then maybe if you get a bundled uh, payment system, then, well, you can just, well, that patient will be more satisfied. It might cost you a little bit more, but, you know, maybe you, you, you get a bit, bit more free about the choice of the treatment as well so right but in that case victor if if the argument is okay you know right now it's okay you come in and there's 
you get a payment, like, you know, the, the system pays for physio, the, the system pays for medications, the system pays for surgery. And you, those decisions happen and you say, okay, we saw 150 patients and here are the overall costs and here are the outcomes. X survived, X have good function. You make some sort of debate and that's been the traditional cost and effectiveness modeling or cost benefit, however you want to disguise the different versions of cost. What you're saying um, is interesting and intriguing in the way that you're basically saying, listen, the overall experience that that patient will have is going to be valued at some amount of resource. Spend it how you best feel that patient should be treated, which makes it in some ways much more individualized, but much more the team comes together. Because right now, I think the biggest challenge I've seen in EBM or we'll say value potentially, and you can educate me on this, everyone works in silos. No one communicates with each other. So everyone thinks yeah. that their little silo is the most important. But if they came together and saying, how do we optimize so we can actually save dollars or use this money the most efficiently, it may turn out that physio gets the brunt in one type of patient and surgery gets the brunt in another. But overall, the value is, you know, like you're, you're trying to do it individually. And I guess, is that, is that the general premise of value-based healthcare? Am I missing something that's beyond that general concept? Well, yes. uh, Oh, Victor, go ahead. No, well, no, I completely agree that the biggest barrier for everything is that you got these separate, well, we call them islands, and, and everybody is on their own island, and they think out of, what should I do? And if the patient thinks, how do I get out of this? How do I get the best results? We think, what should I do for the treatment? The insurance company thinks, what and should I, how, how can I pay the least amount of money? And then you have the government will interfere on every level. So I think... That's the most biggest problem. And then in an hospital, well, let's say for trauma, we in Holland, we have a quite unique system that we have orthopedic surgeons who will do trauma. And on other days in the week, you have the trauma surgeon who will do the trauma, the same surgery. So you have these separate islands for similar treatments. And yeah, so I think that's the biggest, the biggest challenge of all is to, to get, well, so, I think that's how yeah. Porter described it, the integrated uh, maybe- practice unit. Yeah, and also I think what, what this triple aim or even uh, quadruple aim is trying to uh, do is to prevention. So we're uh, uh, taught to do interventions. So we're uh, a surgeon, so we like to operate because it, operating is fun. It makes, I was a, a day in the surgery, I, I feel great today. I feel much better than at the outpatient clinic. The outpatient clinic is far tougher cookie uh, than being in surgery because they have to talk to patients that have, should have been talked to many years ago. They should have been taught at school that they shouldn't get overweight, they should exercise, and they should um, um, try to uh, be fit. So if, I am, if they're at the point that they need a hip replacement and they're at the outpatient clinic, uh, and I start educating them about these issues they should have been taught many years ago, they don't want to hear it. So, and that's why the, the level of uh, the discussion in the outpatient clinic is way out of balance. Um, so we should uh, be and, also part of this educational part uh, much earlier on. Right, know, but Rudolf, the point, the point you're also making though is, if somebody else in this overall care path had, whose, whose real desire and passion is to help educate patients early on to prevent them getting to you, yeah. Good for them. I mean, that saves you having to do it, but they're doing it and they're doing it much more probably in some ways more effectively because it's before they've yeah. actually come to that point, right? I can see that completely. But they're um, in a different silo, yeah. so we, yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't talk to them. That's Oof. right. Um, I, I, I thought for the prevention. 
Yeah, yeah. right. Herman, I think you wanted to say something. I want to let Herman jump in as well. Herman, Joel, you can introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, uh, Herman, Joel here. Um, Herman, is this working? Perfect. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I think we, we've chatted lots, I think, over emails. It's nice to actually have a face-to-face -face here on uh, Zoom. But, um, you know, I think you bring up lots of great points, and, uh, you know, thanks for the great talks. Uh, I think just getting back to the concept of value-based healthcare and evidence-based medicine, I think one of the core issues is, is how do we prioritize each of these outcomes? Because to the different stakeholders and even the stakeholders involved with the evidence-based cycle, whether it's the patient or the surgeon or the, uh, the, the evidence, the, 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 the policymakers, uh, how do we prioritize which, uh, what each one of those uh, people think are important? Because in the end, there's only one decision that can be made. And, and different people are going to view that decision as being a good or bad decision based on how they prioritize things. So I think a challenge that we're, we're facing here, and, and I think it's core to value-based healthcare, is how do you prioritize what outcome? And, you know, we can tie it back to the, 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 the talk you gave and the dislocation um, uh, project where, you know, you knew that patients don't like restrictions. And I tie it back to trauma where, you know, our patients don't like being non-weight-bearing. So we, we're constantly pushing, trying to let them weight-bear earlier and earlier. But these patients, you know, you've decided in hip arthroplasty, don't like to weight bear, don't like restrictions. So you're going to loosen your restrictions and allow them to weight bear, great, or allow them to mobilize earlier, great. But now you've had, you do, and you've seen in your research, have more dislocations. And you've said, okay, well, we're going to accept these increased dislocations because in general, we're going to let all of the rest of these patients go on without restrictions. But, you know, maybe if you ask those patients who've had those dislocations, they might have said different where if you know if you have told us out the bat if you had restricted us from the beginning and told me i wouldn't have dislocated i would have just gone along with the restrictions and we've yeah. decided we've decided as a priority that we're going to allow less restrictions and more weight bearing but to you know forget the, the patients dislocate so you know thanks for the talk but i think that uh, that's just what i to put in so while, while, while someone else jumps in i just have another question for you um that piggybacks up what herman just said is okay so you were we're all of us in some degree are here because we have an interest in it. Some of us have you know, a greater degree of research focus and others are just trying to understand what we can do next. How do you at an individual level in your practice or if you're doing research in the area, whether you're a surgeon or non-surgeon managing people, how do you determine what patients value? Like what is the, what's the, the crust of it? You're asking patients and as simply as that, like what's the process to even go through the you know, sort of the tactic of saying, we are going to now determine for this particular disease state, what, what determines, what is value? Like, what is the value that we're looking to Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a very important question, Mo. Um, I think we, usually we use uh, patient-reported endpoints, uh, and these are patient-reported endpoints, but the questions are um, uh, made up by doctors, and they put into a a questionnaire, and these are doctor-generated questions filled out by patients, and we call them patient-reported endpoints. So that does, doesn't really make sense mm -hmm. because they are still doctor-focused. Um, and uh, what we have, there are new tools like the patient-specific questionnaire. So where the patient picks the, the three points that are most important to them, and they score it from zero to ten, which points they want to be improving on. And also the, the PROMIS computer adaptive testing system, we have uh, a thousand items in an item bank and the computer generates the, the next uh, question based on the, uh, the answer given to the, the first question. That, that maybe helps us to get more to what really matters to the patient. But just asking and 
and that's why I think consultations with patients are still very important to do, just have this personal discussion with the patient. What, what matters to this specific patient? What, what is key for you um, is, is critical. Yeah, and I would say that when you look back, at, and I'm, I'm going to keep using parallels to evidence-based medicine, because I think the majority of us, um, you know, think about that historically about, okay, well, how do we practice? Well, you'd say, my outcomes, like what I think the x-ray looks good is one thing, but if the patient says, I can't walk, uh, that's another thing, right? I mean, so it's a completely different measure. So yeah. we've, we've become accustomed to saying, okay, what matters to you? But the patient sometimes often will say, well, you know, I just want to get back to work. Okay, fair enough. I mean, that could be one point. That's one element of value. But I would imagine that the concept of value chain, even for some patients, may be harder to, you know, for them to even conceptualize from the beginning all the way through to the end. And I guess, who do you bring into this discussion outside of the individual patient as you start thinking about the value chain? Because like, it's one thing to talk, you know, you know, big, big, items like value-based healthcare. And we all walk away thinking, wow, that sounds really important. We should do it. And you get back to your life in your clinic and you say, okay, now I, I, don't, I don't really know what I'm even supposed to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to, how I'm supposed to even enact this at a, at a small level. And I wonder if you can, and maybe I'm harping on the same point, but I have a feeling I'm not the only one thinking this. So maybe you can help us through, through this. So, and how do so, you measure it for the individual patient, right? Because right, every right. patient is unique. And if you do a trial, then every patient has such different demands and wishes. So right. you, can, you can take a prom, a patient reported outcome measure as yeah. a outcome, which we all do right now. And then, uh, but these, all the questions, they do not apply on all, for all patients. So right. it's really right. difficult to measure yeah. the outcome. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, um, uh, we just maybe, we, Brett really wants to say something, I think, but I- Well, I, actually, I, actually I, was, I, uh, I, I also see Ahmed here. So I'm gonna let Ahmed okay, in okay. after you're done, yeah. Good. And also, but maybe, Victor, maybe, maybe one thing Victor can explain about this topic, because we did this uh, trial, uh, we published in uh, JAMA, uh, uh, it's almost two years ago now, uh, on the meniscal tears. And our primary endpoint was the IKDC uh, questionnaire. So also designed by doctors, it's uh, validated. Um, but we also uh, had a a questionnaire running alongside where the patient could fill out their most important problem. What was specific, you know, just by handwriting. Yeah. So uh, no a pre-designed, uh, 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 no, no, no multiple choice question or whatever, just open question. What is most important for you? Right, right. And then uh, score this from zero to 10. And then if they came back, they could uh, score this, uh, uh, their same question, did it change? what you wanted to have improved from zero to 10. So did this change? And then we compared to both groups uh, and, uh, in the, uh, the, and we looked also at uh, the minimal important difference. Yeah. And so on this 10 point scale, it was two, but there was no difference between the treatments. So, but then we're trying to get more to this individual way. We're all, the next buzzword is also individualized uh, medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's uh, maybe we're getting to this more individualized medicine by using these uh, personalized questionnaires. And I think with the, with the computer systems nowadays, we can really um, work on that in a, in a better way. Okay, no, who's next? <laughs> okay, well, you know what? I wouldn't mind Ahmed just getting in because I know he had a question. I'll make sure we get as many people, yeah. 
Okay, thanks, thanks, Mo. Thanks for the presentation. I really agree. I'm just curious when, when, like, when at some point when the value-based uh, healthcare gave us different answer than the evidence-based medicine. For example, if if an intervention is really effective, highly effective, but on the other hand, it have very low uh, cost value and a very low cost-benefit ratio. So, what do we do with these with these patients or in this case? And and is there any kind of ethical consideration because this the patient might benefit from the intervention, but on the same on the same uh, point, uh, they have really low value. So, what do we do at this situation? So, just to get your question clear, so if the um, if there's not much evidence that a, a, a treatment would work. No, uh, no, if there's if it's a very, yeah, very high evidence, like level one evidence that it's working, okay. but. But, but no, but no one cares. It sounds like, right? Yeah, it's almost like um, it's it's it's. I I I look at it this way: you have you have a very robust finding in something yeah. that patients don't care about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or very or very high value, like it's have very high value that maybe doesn't have, give you the the benefit from the uh, that what you what the system paid something. Yeah. So one way to look at this maybe is to um, uh, if we try to. Um, develop new trials, uh, we try to involve patients. So we set up a, a healthcare evaluation program with uh, a, a prioritizing uh, research questions. Um, and the, the British are also doing this with the James Lind Alliance. And they're tr uh, we're trying to uh, have patients involved and to uh, decide which questions, which research unanswered questions uh, should we look at into re uh, if we do new trials? So what matters to patients? And also the outcomes uh, that are chosen in these new trials, we try to involve patients to see what are uh, endpoints that really matter to you. And then it, this helps to uh, actually, uh, well, make the, the, the trial more general, generalizable uh, when the results are there uh, and also uh, makes makes the implementation easier. Uh, does this does this touch your question? The answer to your question? Yeah. yeah thank you. Okay. Great. I'm um, just letting you know that when you're having fun, time flies. We're about two minutes from uh, the session being uh, near its conclusion. Um, is there anyone who had a comment or uh, anything you wanted to raise? Yes. Okay. I think I see Pablo. Pablo, where are you, my friend? Oh yes, Pablo. Sorry. Hi. Excellent uh, presentation. This is a very interesting topic. And I was just, uh, kept, I kept on thinking about that uh, trial regarding the dislocation rate that changed when the measures were, were switched to uh, less restrictive uh, for the patients. And I think, it kept, I kept on thinking, how, how can we measure uh, social bias? I mean, we we don't know patients' behavior. And uh, as, as far as I, I can speak on my practice because I know the patients here in Argentina, they come from Italian families or Spanish families and those patients, they wanna know what to do. They want, they want the doctor to tell them what to do. They don't want the doctor to tell them what, if, they, if they are able to do whatever they want. They just wanna hear, doctor, what are my restrictions? Yes. They come to the clinic like that. So I don't know how we can measure actually 
I mean, this, this bias, th this bias, because this, the results that you're showing are not going to be the same in Argentina or in Canada or in South well, maybe, yeah, that's, that's a good Africa, point. whatever. Yeah, that's a good point. So the, the social cultural background of patients is it's, it's really important. So, um, but the, 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 uh, uh, the difference between the pre and post uh, restriction rules intervention uh, showed there was no uh, increase in uh, dislocation. So just to get that clear, maybe the slides weren't too clear, but there was actually no difference. So restrictions, less restrictions, didn't result in more uh, dislocations. Um, but this was not a real experiment. This was just, uh, okay, let's start. Everyone is happy. Okay, we found this, let's start and see what's happening. So um, that's what I was trying to propose the, the next level where you do this stepped wedged introduction uh, to see on a randomized way with the clusters to see if it's really working or is it just uh, our enthusiasm and uh, it's, well, we're, I always say we're in a big mind fuck. So uh, it's, uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're- I will be bleeped, don't worry. Uh, beep, beep. <laughs> we yeah. No, but, but but the point I mean the, the thing that that is is that we like as you eloquently put in in this in your presentations gentlemen was the following you know we've got to figure out value broadly we've got to determine like who determines it. primarily it's got to come from the patient I think and, and but beyond that who else gets involved in situations where culturally patients may feel uncomfortable talking about it so who else can we get involved that would uh, engage it but ultimately the future and maybe that's going to have to be a part two of this. I think we'll have to have, we're going to have to do a value-based healthcare part two, invite you gentlemen back yeah. to continue the discussion. We'll, we'll have our second series and we'll make sure we all get you all back and let you know. But maybe the next, great. yeah, and maybe the next part of this discussion has got to be, how do we actually implement it? Like, how do we actually make this grow in a way that we can actually, uh, you know, set up the systems in place? Clearly the old way of doing research is gone um, and gone in a way it's not, it's not the future. So I think we have lots and lots of um, really exciting opportunities ahead. And this discussion Absolutely. in my mind just gets us, you know, uh, touching the surface of it. If I could, I would uh, leave it to you, uh, Dr. Pullman, to maybe have a few closing remarks before we uh, say goodbye. Well, it's, it's, it's great to um, uh, be able to discuss this uh, topic with so many people from around the world and it, it's, it's such a great opportunity to have this like in a smaller group session uh, another webinar where where people are so distant and actually people can raise questions uh, and chat with each other uh, from around the world and and this uh, this uh, different perspective from Argentina is so um, wonderful that we can actually learn from each other in such a fast way that we're, we're not able uh, before so Talking to you right now is like uh, when we were in Canada or talking to the other people here, it's like uh, when you're sitting next door. And um, I think this, this, this crisis also brings new opportunities, brings people closer together to find uh, quicker solutions, brighter solutions. And um, I, I really appreciate that you are hosting this and that you um, facilitate this uh, improvement in healthcare. It's wonderful. Great. Well, thank you all. Uh, thank you for taking an hour with us and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening, the rest of your day. Take care, everyone. Okay. Bye -bye. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you very Thanks. much. Bye -bye. Cheers, everyone. Bye-bye.